Hello, you marvellous geeky people, and welcome back to the 52nd edition of Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geek-fuelled rants about science, movies and TV, and all the things that I am excited about. And we're going to start with the science section, because we haven't done the science section for a couple of weeks, and obviously we've got stuff to talk about. So. Without further ado, let's talk about science. You know, I've really missed that jingle. Anyway, onwards, onwards, onwards. There are some science news stories that I want to get into. But first, last week I promised that I would be doing some little mini features on women who have been important in science. And I'm going to start with somebody who ties in to this week's big science story, or at least the science story that I want to tell this week, the one that I think is most important. It's got to do with space. Not really a spoiler. Really, it's me. Come on. But I want to talk about a woman who was crucial to one of the greatest scientific and engineering achievements of the 20th century, a woman whose name should have been in banner headlines in the 1960s. It wasn't. It wasn't for a couple of reasons, which are both obvious when you think about it and profoundly annoying. Because although there were reasons why her name was not on banner headlines at the time, those reasons are bad, bad reasons. I'm not actually sure that we live in more enlightened times, but I can at least say we live in times where such lack of recognition is no longer allowed to pass. Because you may be familiar with this wonderful woman of science from the film from a few years ago called Hidden Figures, which she was a central character in. I am, of course, talking about the incredible mathematician and computer scientist Catherine Johnson. Catherine Johnson was born... Carola Catherine Coleman, on the 26th of August, 1918, in the town of White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Her mother was Joylette Roberta Coleman, and uh, her father was Joshua McKinley Coleman. Uh, she was the youngest of four children. Uh, her mother, uh, Joylette, was a teacher, and her father was... Well, her father was doing whatever he needed to do. He's variously described as a lumberman, a farmer, a handyman. We know he also worked at the Greenbrier Hotel in White Sulphur Springs. It may be her father, it may be her mother who encouraged her. It may not have been either of them. But it is very clear that from a very early age, Catherine Johnson showed immense mathematical ability. Uh, the school that she attended, uh, Greenbrier County, uh, didn't offer public schooling for African-American students past the eighth grade. Uh, and so the Colemans arranged for their children to attend high school in the town of Institute, West Virginia. Now, this school was actually on the West Virginia State College campus. Uh, and Johnson enrolled in that school when she was 10. And the family split their time between Institute during the school year and White Sulphur Springs in the summer. So she graduated from high school at age 14. And that is early. OK, you, you know, like 18, 19 normally when you leave high school. So Johnson, clearly an exceptional student. And she went on to go to um, WVSC, uh, which is the West Virginia State College, a historically Black college, uh, because this is the 1920s at this point, and racism basically. We're you know we're in Virginia, we're in the South. Uh, it was difficult for a person of color to make a, their way academically, because that didn't fit the narrative that various people in control of the the leaves of power in Virginia wanted to tell. They didn't want to see clever, high-achieving, academic people of colour. You know, they wanted to see people of colour as less intelligent than white folk. 
So it was always going to be a difficult path. But Johnson was clearly very determined. Uh, she took every single course in mathematics that was offered by uh, WVSC. And she was mentored, taken under the wing of several professors, uh, including uh, Angie Turner King, who had also sort of mentored her through high school. She was a mathematician and a chemist. Uh, and um, W.W. Shiflin Claytor, he was only the third African-American to receive a doctorate in mathematics. Um, Claytor actually added new mathematics courses to the to the curriculum just for Johnson. Uh, she graduated summa cum laude, which I assume is good. We don't do that kind of thing in the UK. And she graduated in 1937 with degrees in mathematics and French at the age of 18. Now, just take a second, like, to process that. I don't know how old you were. If you if you have a, a university degree, I don't know how old you were when you graduated. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest it wasn't 18. I was 24 when I graduated, I think. So she took a teaching job uh, at a black public school in Marion, Virginia. And she left that teaching job in 1939 after marrying her first husband, a guy called James Goebel, and she enrolled in a graduate maths programme. She quit after a year because she became pregnant and chose to focus on her family life, which is a story we see so often when we look at women in any professional sphere, really, uh, that, you know, when the decision is made to have a family, which I presume is a joint decision, it is generally the woman who is expected to give up her career. I'm making no particular point about that. That's an observation. She was, however, the first African-American woman to have attended graduate school at West Virginia University. Uh, and through WVSC's president, uh, a guy called Dr. John W. Davis, she became one of three African-American students and the only female selected to integrate in the graduate school after the 1938 Supreme Court ruling. Uh, which required states, which provided public higher education to white students, to provide it to students of colour as well, either by establishing separate black colleges and universities or by admitting black students to previously white only universities. So there was still that separate but equal thing that was very much a feature all the way through into the 1960s going on. But at least it was acknowledged that people of colour deserved their opportunity to get their education. Didn't go far enough by any means, in my view, but hey, it was a start. So Johnson decided to make her career as a research mathematician. Now, this is a field that was difficult for African-Americans to enter. It was a field that was difficult for women to enter. Yeah, we're, we're talking 1940s here. You know, women were not expected to be in the workplace, whatever skin tone they had. For a woman of colour, it was even more challenging. And so the first jobs she found were in teaching, which to this day is a fairly female dominated profession. Uh, in 1952, uh, at some kind of family gathering, it was mentioned to her by a, as far as I'm aware, unnamed relative. I've not been able to find out which relative it was. Uh, but somebody mentioned to her that the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, otherwise known as the NACA, was looking for mathematicians. They were wanted for work at the um, aeronautics laboratories at Langley in Virginia. So, you know, relatively close to home. And... NA, the NACA was a federal organisation, which meant it was kind of by law and, and as close to an equal opportunities employer as existed at the time. They certainly hired African-American mathematicians for their guidance and navigation department. And Johnson took a job there in June of 1953. Now, according to um, various sources that I've, I've read, uh, she started off in a pool of women performing math calculations. 
the kind of job that was at the time still referred to as being a computer. Um, they were the people who did the calculations. Um, they were to take the, the data from black boxes in of um, experimental aircraft and carry out, you know, mathematical analysis of that data to produce results that could then be given back to the engineers. Uh, it came to pass that one day Catherine and a colleague were temporarily assigned to an all-male flight research team. Uh, and because Catherine Johnson had such a firm grasp of analytic analytic ge analytic geometry, I can't even say it, let alone understand it. Because she was so good at that, I'm not saying it again, she was able to demonstrate her worth to some of the other male people working on that team. To the extent that, in her words, and this is a direct quote, they forgot to return me to the pool. So, yeah, she was accept And this is something that you find in academia, actually. If you can do the work, then the respect and the acceptance might be grudging, but it's usually there. Alan Turing, uh, who I obviously won't be talking about in this series, but I might talk about at a later date, experienced something similar at Bletchley Park um, a few years before this. Now, obviously, 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 I'm not going to gloss over the, the fact that there were still racial and gen gender barriers put up in front of her. Catherine Johnson herself says, yeah, they were there, but she ignored them. Uh, she asserted herself. She insisted that she was included in editorial meetings, which had never been, ha been done for any woman before. And she simply insisted that she'd done the work and she belonged. So she worked as a computer at Langley until 1958, analysing um, all kinds of aeronautical data. I, I can point you in the show notes at various articles about things. I won't go into details because, frankly, it's not. I mean, it's all relevant, but I wouldn't. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't understand what she did, and I therefore cannot explain it to you. There are articles online that will do a much better job of that. So I'll simply signpost you to them. Links in the show notes um, at uh, destinationvenus.co.uk. Um, so she was originally assigned to the West Area Computers section, uh, supervised by a mathematician called Dorothy, Dor Dorothy Fawn. She was then reassigned to the Guidance and Control Division of um, the Flight Research Division at Langley, which was, apart from her, staffed by exclusively white male engineers. Now, although this was a federal thing, it was in Virginia, and the state had very strict uh, racial segregation laws. And the federal workplace segregation introduced under President Woodrow Wilson um, was also still extant. It hadn't been repealed. So Johnson and other Afri Afri African-American women were required to eat, work, and used restrooms, the Americans called restrooms, the loos, uh, that were separate from those of their white peers. The office was labelled coloured computers, uh, which is why if you use the term coloured to refer to people of colour in America, uh, you don't get a very good response. It is Coloured in America is regarded as a smear. Um, now, Johnson has stated in interviews that she didn't feel the segregation at NASA because everyone was doing research. And that, you know, you had a mission, you worked on the mission and you did your job. Yeah, she, I think the, the quote that sums it up the most is, and this is a direct quote, I didn't feel any segregation. I knew it was there, but I didn't feel it. So I've just mentioned NASA there for the first time. Basically, the NACA disbanded um, the heavy air quotes, coloured computing pool in 1958, because that's when the agency was superseded by NASA, the National Aeronautical and Space Administration, which we still have today. At that point, um, the installation was desegregated, but, you know, 
the discrimination was still there. We're still in Virginia. It's still the late 1950s. Things didn't change much. Now, Catherine Johnson continued to work as an, as an aerospace technologist uh, until her, from 1958 until her retirement in 1986, uh, moving through her career into the spacecraft controls branch. Um, and that would be remarkable in itself. The thing that, for me, made her worthy of being on banner headlines and having her names shouted from the rooftops in the 1960s is, as part of her job at the spacecraft controls branch, she calculated the trajectory for the flight of Alan Shepard on May the 5th, 1961, making him the first American in space. She also calculated the launch window for that mission as well. So, you know, that's huge. If she'd got those sums wrong, the first American in space probably would have died. That's how important this is. And there was no mechanical or electronic computer that could do that job. Everything depended on her sums. She also plotted backup navigation charts for astronauts in case they were electronic failures. And when they came to calculate the orbit for John Glenn's Mercury flight, which was the first orbital American flight, NASA used electronic computers for the first time. And John Glenn said, uh-uh, no, no. He asked for her, specifically her, to calculate his orbit. And he flatly refused to fly unless Catherine Johnson agreed with the computer's calculations. Now, these were difficult calculations. You had to account for the gravitational pulls of celestial bodies and all kinds of variables about speed, what happens if a rocket motor goes out. So John Glenn, an astronaut who resonates in American space culture for being the first American to orbit the Earth, and up until recently when Wally Funk, a woman we're probably going to talk about again in the future, flew um, with Bezos, uh, John Glenn also held the record of being the oldest American to fly in space when he flew in the 90s. was a very old man aboard the shuttle. This guy, this hero, this man who had the right stuff, this military test pilot, said, nah, I don't trust any of you. If you want me to get in that tin can and fly in it, she has got to do the calculations because if she doesn't, I know I will be able to come home. That simple. So obviously time moved on. Uh, NASA went completely digital. Catherine Johnson moved with those times. She worked directly with digital computers, um, but she was able to check their work. So in the early days when computers were less reliable, if there was a bug, she would spot it. It was her work in 1961 that helped ensure Alan Shepard's Freedom 7 Mercury capsule would be found so quickly after landing. Uh, and bearing in mind, you know, they came down in the sea. You needed to find them relatively quickly. Uh, she basically calculated where it would have to land and directed the Navy straight to it. She also helped calculate the trajectory for the Apollo 11 flight to the moon in 1969. And she was also involved in NASA's most successful failure, the flight of Apollo 13. And honestly, having someone of her calibre working on the orbital mechanics and the calculations required to bring Apollo 13 home was probably one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that Apollo's 13, Apollo 13's crew survived. And uh, I've met Fred Hayes, who was the um, command module pilot in uh, Apollo 13, and he's a really nice guy, and I'm glad he's not dead. And he's not dead, largely in thanks to Katherine Johnson. She worked on the space shuttle program towards the end of her career. Uh, she worked on plans for Mars missions, and she worked hard in her later years, encouraging students to enter the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics. She was a fabulous role model. 
She was a real, genuine inspiration and a beacon, a pioneer who showed the way. Um, I'm not going to go into this. There were some tragedies in her personal life which I'm not going to go into. I am going to mention that amongst the many scientific awards uh, and other awards uh, she garnered during her lifetime, she was also presented by uh, President Barack Obama with the Presidential Medal of Freedom on the 24th of November 2015, uh, cited as a pioneering example of African-American women in STEM. President Obama said, and again, direct quote, Catherine G. Johnson refused to be limited by society's expectations of her gender and race while expanding the boundaries of humanity's reach. And I don't know what more a person can do than that. So here's to Catherine Johnson, a name that should be as household a name as Neil Armstrong's, in my view. Uh, it's sad that it isn't. Uh, she left us finally in 2020. Uh, she actually passed on February the 24th, 2020, aged 101. Uh, James Brindlestein, uh, who was then NASA's administrator, described her as an American hero and stated that her pioneering legacy will never be forgotten. And it won't. But it could have been. Because like so many other women in science, she just didn't get the public credit that she deserved at the time she was working. I want to help change that, which is one of the reasons for this little series on the wonderful women of science. And I want to move on to something that, were she younger and alive, Catherine Johnson might well have been involved in, and that is the Artemis mission to the moon. And yes, I know, space has its own section, and this is the science section. So, very quickly, just to make you happy, you understand, time for another jingle. So yeah, what is going on with Artemis? So last time I mentioned Artemis Mission 1, I was talking about how they were in the middle of a wet dress rehearsal. That is to say, uh, a rehearsal of the, all the pre-launch stuff, where they take the entire spacecraft out to the launch pad, fuel it up as though they were going to go, and see if everything works. Well, spoilers, not everything works. Now, that's not as catastrophic a piece of news as you might expect. Basically, they've got some sticky valves. These are the stains, the stain, the same sticky valves that are causing problems for Boeing's Starliner. And surprise, surprise, they're made by Boeing. So let that reassure you the next time you fly. It doesn't really matter. There's no urgency about this, this mission particularly, except that Artemis 2, which will have a crew aboard, clearly cannot fly until Artemis 1 has flown and everything, even if it goes well, everything has been checked and the telemetry has been studied and all of that. So the more we delay the launch of Artemis 1, the longer it will take for humans to go back around the moon. Artemis 2 is not intending to land people on the moon. Well, not, not intending, will not be able to land people on the moon. They won't have the wherewithal to do that. They don't have the spacesuits, they don't have the landers. But Artemis 2 will take people further than people have been since 1972. It will take people back around the moon, along with a whole other bunch of science. Artemis 1 itself is carrying a whole bunch of science. It's not just an empty spaceship going around the moon. It's a spaceship with no humans on it, but loaded with scientific uh, instruments and experiments. So that's all good. They're talking now about a launch date of Artemis 1 no earlier than August this year. That's August 2022. Now, if they can get her in the air at the end of this summer, I'm quite pleased with that, actually, given the um, torrid history of the space launch system, which is the huge rocket they're using to launch Artemis to the moon. 
It's actually bigger than the Saturn V. It's a massive thing. I'll I'll take I'll take end of summer this year. To be honest, I'll take I'll take early 2023 if that's how long it takes. What does matter though, and it really does matter, which is why I'm glad they're being cautious, is that Artemis One works because space is all about success. No one's interested in a failed space mission. We got away with it once with Apollo 13 by making it a drama. And we got away with it once with um, Beagle 2 because Professor Colin Pillinger was awesome. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, links in the show notes to some stuff about Beagle 2 and um, Professor Pillinger because he was a great, great man. And I'm sad that he didn't live to see some of the amazing science that's coming back from Mars now. But that's by the by. He's another wonderful person of science that we'll probably talk about at some point. But generally speaking, given how expensive space is, if you go to a population and say, thank you for all the tax dollars you spent on this project that we have just crashed into the surface of the moon or crashed into the surface of Mars, people get quite antsy about that. So we need to deliver a win. Because I do genuinely think it's important to get people excited about space again. It's a much better way to spend our money than some of the things we spend it on. And in these conflicted times, the sense of unity that I think space can bring is more valuable than it's ever been. So, as I say, the wet dress rehearsal for Artemis 1 was about a 96% success. There's a couple of very small issues that are causing very big problems. I mean, you cannot fly with sticky valves in the fuel system, but those are easily surmountable. It's not quite as, as easy as putting some WD-40 on it, but, you know, it's it's not a terrible bit of news that's going to scupper the whole thing. I think from what I'm reading uh, and hearing, that August 2022 launch date isn't unrealistic. And I am very much looking forward to seeing the space launch system fly for the first time because I was alive when the last Saturn Vs launched, but I wasn't old enough to be aware of what was happening. So I've never seen a live launch of a truly massive rocket. So kind of looking forward that the, the, pyro, the pyrotechnic guy in me is just really keen to see a big rocket launch and i suspect the sls will be significantly much more impressive than the starship from spacex um which is an amazing bit of kit i i, I have my issues with elon musk as regular listeners will know but i've got no particular problem with the achievements of SpaceX. I, I think they are astounding. I mean, the fact that Boeing is having trouble with the Starliner. Boeing being brought in to do the Starliner as a crew transportation system that NASA would be able to use to get people to the ISS. They were supposed to be the safe pair of hands. Elon Musk and SpaceX were supposed to be like the, the crazy young mavericks who were like probably going to fail, but let's give them their shot. It's turned out to be the other way around. SpaceX have now taken dozens of people to the International Space Station and Boeing, this huge corporation, can't get their ship off the ground. And they have been given much more money, much, much, much more money, certainly millions, possibly billions more dollars by NASA to get their spacecraft going than was given to SpaceX. Once again, demonstrating that this is a field where a small and agile company such as SpaceX can achieve things that the established behemoths of aviation can't. And honestly, space is expensive. And if we can find a way to do it safely and more cheaply, that's what we should be doing. So I'm well up with SpaceX for this. Uh, I fully expect to see that before too long in the, you know, once the moon thing gets going, it'll be SpaceX starships that are doing most of the grunt work, 
not the space launch system. But we will keep you going with um, more information on Artemis as and when we get it. As soon as we get a confirmed launch date, we'll be letting you know, obviously. It is the biggest thing that NASA have done, really since the early days of shuttle, in terms of innovation. And that's quite exciting. And it's exciting that international partners are kind of on board. So, yeah, watch this space. We'll see how it goes. But having mentioned the Boeing Starliner and the SpaceX Crew Dragon, let's get back to the basic task of shuttling stuff up to the International Space Station. That's what the space, the space shuttle was originally intended to do. That's why they built the space shuttle, so that they could use it to build and supply orbital platforms like the International Space Station, not the International Space Station. America was still thinking of doing it on its own at that stage. Uh, it was just coming out of Skylab and was planning the Space Station Freedom, a large part of which became the ISS in the end. And I think, I still think, that NASA were right when they said what we need for this is a space plane, something that goes up like a rocket and comes down like a plane. So much more steerable, so much more directable than a parachute, and so much more fuel efficient than the retro rocket landing system that's used by SpaceX. Now, I, I, I've said before, I understand why SpaceX developed that system. They're not really thinking about landing on Earth. They're thinking about landing on Mars and the Moon. But if you are landing on Earth, where you have an atmosphere, wings are the way to go. So I've been surprised that space planes haven't really taken off since the retirement of shuttle. The only thing approaching a sort of functioning space plane that we have currently, I can say in service, kind of in service, uh, is Virgin Galactic's Spaceship Two, which isn't really orbital capable. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of problems with using Spaceship Two for going to the International Space Station. So it's nice that finally there's a new kid on the block. But a newish kid. Uh, the Dream Chaser space plane has been arrived around for a while. It's finally been given permission uh, by the Federal Aviation Authority in the US to land at Alabama Airport. Now, now they've got that going, they um, could be flying cargo missions to the International Space Station as early as next year, 2023. Now, space planes are difficult, and it's again telling, I think, that it's Sierra, a quite a small aviation company that has gone into the niche that was left by the shuttle. Uh, and become like a viable cargo carrying delivery truck, which is what the space the space shuttle was going to be used as, I guess. Um, obviously, the Dream Chaser is nowhere near as big as the space station was. It doesn't have anything like the same capacity, but it can carry enough stuff to be useful. And in the end, that's what matters. It can get stuff to the International Space Station and get back and be reusable. It's exactly what the shuttle was supposed to be developing into. And, you know, I'm a kid I of the 80s. I remember those very first shuttle flights. I remember the glide flights of Space Shuttle Enterprise, the one that never flew in space, uh, before the launch of um, Space Shuttle Columbia with that very first Space Shuttle flight. I love the Space Shuttle. I've watched every single one of those big white birds fly, launch, land, orbit. I watched two of them be destroyed live on TV. I, I have a huge affection for the space shuttle. Uh, it affected a huge part of my life. And I'm so happy to see that legacy maintained. But we have lots more to talk about and remarkably little time. So let's move on. Leave space behind. and get stuck in to everything else that's going on in the wonderful world of geek. Geeks, man. I always wanted you to be a geek. 
Okay, so time to move on a little bit. And it's been a while since I've done any proper comics recommendations. And that seems silly because there have been so many new releases that are just knocking it out of the park. So without further ado, here's the comics roundup, not just for this week, but for the last few weeks. Okay, these are in no particular order, but they are all out now. So, we're going to start with the return of a couple of old friends. The first is Bunny Mask. Specifically, Bunny Mask the Hollow Inside. Now, the original Bunny Mask had a really grim, dark horror to it. The Bunny Mask in question is a very mysterious... I'm going to go with Creature. Uh, She's a female creature who wears a a sort of shift dress and a rabbit mask. And there's something something very strange going on with this creature. Um, She seems to be able to transport people from where they are to a sort of a cave system where things probably began. She may or may not be related to a dead child, but that dead child may or may not be dead. Because the central character of Bunny Mask, uh, a psychiatrist, is having or had a relationship with the adult woman that the apparently dead child grew into. Even though, with the help of the local sheriff, the psychiatrist found the bones of the dead girl. So that's odd. We still haven't had that resolved. The relationship between the psychiatrist and the woman that the dead girl may well have grown into, who is an artist that specialises in, well, rabbits, mostly. uh, Creepy, spooky rabbit sculptures, in fact. That relationship is kind of on hold because neither of them can navigate through it. And the psychiatrist has a very odd physical relationship with the bunny mask herself. All of that is where... We start with the hollow inside because the bunny mask is a supernatural creature and she's aware when other supernatural things happen. Apparently unrelated to bunny mask, there is another supernatural being. Uh, We're going to call him the hollow and he has the ability to make people cease to exist, not just disappear, not just die. Not just be somewhere else, but to literally cease to exist. Once the hollow has you, nobody can even remember you were ever there. So it's complete erasure. And only the bunny mask seems to notice the absence. Where that's going, I've no idea. But this is ridiculously creepy stuff. It's properly horrifying. Genuinely, I'm not going to say scary, I'm going to say disturbing horror. Uh, Written by Paul Tobin, uh, art by uh, Andrea Mutti, and letters by Taylor Esposito. If you are a horror fan, Bunny Mask is properly horrifying. But while we're talking about the return of old friends, I have to mention Fables issue 151. And the reason I have to to mention that is I can't remember how long ago it was that Fables 150 came out, but it was a long time, certainly more than five years. It might even be ten. And if you're familiar with Fables, the idea of Fables was that all of the fairy tale creatures, all of the fairy tale characters that you know and love from childhood are real. They just don't live on this plane of existence, except they do now, because there was a war amongst the Fables. I'm not going to spoiler it and tell you who started it and who won, because it's kind of a plot point for the first 150 issues of Fables. But a lot of Fables escaped into our world, where they lived in secret, in a place called Fabletown, which was in New York City. It was just a massive castle in New York City that nobody could see if they weren't actually a Fable. So, lots of things happened. Fables 150 wrapped up with the culmination of a very long conflict ended in a massive boss fight between 
an ancient witch called Frau Tottenkinder, and Cinderella, who is significantly more badass than you might imagine. In that battle, Fable Town was all but destroyed. Most of the Fables escaped back to other realms, which are safe now, because the war that made them all leave in the first place is over. And Fable Town became visible to regular folk, or the Mundanes, or Mundies, as the Fables call us. Left behind were Old King Cole, who was the mayor of Fable Town, and a couple of other folk, just to kind of explain what's been going on to the Mundies. And that's where we pick up. And we follow various characters into their new lives. We've got Old King Cole and a couple of other characters sticking around in Fable Town to be the kind of Fable embassy to our world. One of the central characters, one of the central partnerships in the first run of Fables was the relationship between Bigby, who is literally the big bad wolf, and Snow White. They're married, they have kids, and they've gone back to Bigby's old lands, which are now occupied by other people, and Bigby doesn't really care. Bigby's going back and taking what's, what's his. He doesn't want to argue with anybody, but if they argue with him, there'll be an argument. But it looks as though we're going to be focusing mostly in this new run on a character called Jack in the Green, who is new. There was a Jack in the Green, but he retired. And the new Jack in the Green is very, very different. We will see how this pans out. It's the original team of um, Bill uh, Bill Willingham and Mark Buckingham uh, who did the original run. It looks exactly like it did when it was here last. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And I can't praise it highly enough. It's a 12-issue run. Whether there'll be more issues after that, I cannot say. But this particular storyline is called The Black Forest. It's a 12-issue run. It started last week. I, I recommend you jump on. You don't need to have read any more fables than this issue to get into this particular story. You will figure out the characters as you go. And, you know, I'm always on hand to explain things. So that's Fables, issue 151. The Black Forest, part one of 12. Uh, it's out right now. It's 3.50 from DC Comics. Uh, it's, it's a black label book, which is what DC have used to replace Vertigo, which it was originally. Uh, so generally that means not particularly for younger readers, but I don't really think there's anything in Fables that would be unsuitable. So there's that. And speaking of DC sort of non-mainstream -main imprints, I'd like to introduce you to Earth M. Now, Way, way, way back in the 90s, under the um, the guidance of Dwayne McDuffie, who was a stunning writer, DC launched something called Milestone Comics, which was intended to feature black characters written and illustrated by black creators. Because at the time, there was a real issue with representation. Gosh, that's changed. They've been reviving milestone over the last couple of years and now they're taking it to the next level uh, and they're launching earth m which is a kind of separate dc universe which focuses on characters of color created by creators of color now i have some issues with that i would prefer it if they did this in the mainstream dc universe but hey there's reasons i'm sure and this does allow these new characters to shine without being overshadowed by the legacy characters that weigh so heavily on DC. So I, get, I guess I get why they've done it. Uh, the launch title for this new imprint of Earth M is called Duo. And it features two characters that I guess the Americans are referred to as AAPI, which is Asian American Pacific Islander heritage. They're scientists and they think they've, they're coming up with a way of allowing intelligent nanobots to heal just about any disease and deal with just about any injury. And they take this discovery they've made to a big style pharmaceutical company, hoping to get some funding 
so they can finish their their research and make this thing commercially available. They think they can save mankind with this. The pharmaceutical company turns them down, pointing out that, guys, this stuff gets in the wrong hands. It can be used as one of the most deadly weapons that has ever existed and sends them away. But then there's some betrayal stuff goes on. And then there's a massive accident. Now, these two scientists are a partnership in every way. They're partners in science. They're partners in life. Uh, they are deeply in love. And during the accident, one of those scientists, Kelly Kim, disappears. She just vanishes, leaving behind her partner, Dr. David Kim, who is clearly traumatised by the loss. He doesn't know what has, what's happened. Um, he's shown the bones of Kelly um, and he identifies them by the engagement ring. They were engaged to be married, these two. And he's you know, clearly traumatised. But whatever the forces are that caused the accident are still on his tail. That's when he discovers not only does he have some kind of powers, presumably vested upon him by these intelligent nanobots, but there's a voice in his head that sounds very familiar. It looks as though David and Kelly are not going to be separated. They are forever a duo. I've done a really bad job of selling that. It's a spectacular opening issue. Uh, I, I've not come across a debut of a superhero book that I've enjoyed quite so much in a while. Uh, it's from DC's Earth M imprint. Uh, it is out right now. It is £3.50 uh, and it's written by Greg Pack with art by uh, Koi Pham and Scott Hanna with letters by Chris Sotomayor. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. And since we are still talking about the return of old and valued friends, there is a new run of Mirka and Dolfo's Unnatural in the shape of Unnatural Blue, bo blue Blood. Now, Unnatural was a very, very strange book in many ways. It was sort of allegorical. Uh, it dealt with uh, sexual repression and uh, authoritarianism. It was set in a world of anthropomorphic animals. And the idea was that only people, because all the animals are people, only people of the same species could marry. So, you know, that was a not particularly subtle way of dealing with the issues of sexual identity. Um, and in addition to that rule in that society, everyone had to be married. You had to have a partner. You had to have children. And if you couldn't find a partner, then the state would find a partner for you. You were expected to conform, which, again, not a particularly subtle way of approaching references to gender and sexual politics in the real world. Against that backdrop, we had Leslie. He was a pig, quite an attractive pig, got to say. Um, she didn't want to marry another pig. She wouldn't get married at all. And she was having dreams and fantasies about a mysterious wolf who, clearly unavailable to her, except dominating her thoughts completely. She was obsessed. And then she found out the wolf was real. And then things got really strange. It was a fascinating adventure that dealt with all kinds of real world issues. But it was also very well written and incredibly well illustrated by Mirka Andolfo, who is an Italian writer and artist. Uh, I think Unnatural might have been pretty much the first of her work that was translated into English and published by an English language publisher, in this case, Image Comics. Andolfo's work is unashamedly sexy. There's nowhere around it. And if you look at anything she's done, she draws characters in the most attractive way. 
is the best safer work way I can write this. It's not porn in any way. This isn't um, that kind of comic, but it is very sex positive and very sexual. Unnatural Blue Blood kind of picks up where Unnatural left off. The repressive regime has been overthrown. Uh, Leslie and her wolf boyfriend are together. Uh, the, the, the procreation laws in that society have been scrapped. People are free to do and love whatever they want and whoever they want. But there's still a problem. And Leslie is going to have to face it and deal with it. Can't say any more than that, because anything else I say would be a, a massive spoiler. But again, we're dealing with issues in this story of identity and justice and freedom and all of that good stuff. Brilliantly well written, again, by Merck Randolfo, of whom you may have noticed I am a massive fan these days. Uh, Andolfo has handed off the art duties here, though, which I'm a little sad about because I refer to my previous comments about Andolfo being an astounding artist. Uh, I understand, though, art takes a long time and Andolfo is very busy. She's got several books in print at the moment, several series that are ongoing. Uh, so she's handed art over to a guy called Ivan, or possibly Ivan, uh, Bidarella. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Or Bigarella, possibly. Um, he's good. He's no Mercurandolfo. I've got to say this. The art is not as much to my taste as Andolfo's was, but it's still good. It still takes the, the anthropomorphic animal cartoony style uh, and draws it in a very expressive way. You know what these characters are thinking just by looking at them. It's brilliantly done in that regard. Um, it lacks some of the sensual lines that Andolfo brings to her work. But, you know, I guess we have to live with that. There's only one Merca Andolfo, after all. I found the first issue very intriguing. There's a lot of world building being done to build this new world that's coming out of the old world of the original Unnatural series. And uh, I'm hooked. I'm completely hooked. I don't even mind the change of artist. So that's Unnatural Blue Blood, out right now, came out this week, uh, from Image Comics, it's 350, and it's available in all good comic shops. And I guess maybe I'll wrap this section up in a second, but I do then just want to give a quick shout out to two more things. Uh, I've mentioned House of Slaughter in this segment before. The first storyline has now wrapped up. That took the first five issues. Issue six is a brilliant jumping on point. It follows one of the red masks. I, if you don't know the, the idea of the House of Slaughter, it's a, a religious order, basically, that hunts monsters. Um, the white masks do the hunting, the black masks do the monitoring of the hunters, and the red masks do the recording and the admin, basically. This follows one of the red masks on a mission to find out whether a monster is being created or not. And it's, again, brilliantly written by James Tinney IV and Sam Johns, uh, from a script by Sam Johns, um, with illustration by uh, Letizia Cadenici, with colours by Francesco Segella and letters by Andworld Design. And it looks brilliant. It looks stunning. The story is utterly engrossing. I am being drawn into this world of the House of Slaughter more and more with every issue. It's such a simple idea. They're monster hunters, but it takes on so many other ideas within it. It's obviously a spin-off from the series Something is Killing the Children, which is also ongoing, but it's developing a personality of its own, House of Slaughter, and it's continuing to impress. The first storyline, I thought, was incredibly subtle. The current one, I think, is building on that subtlety. It's, it's a way of looking at the world, it's a way of exploring ideas and concepts, and it's really working for me. So that's House of Slaughter, issue six, uh, part one of the storyline Scarlet, 
uh, out right now. I think it was actually out last week. 350 from Boom Studios. Cannot recommend it highly enough. And finally, from Kyle Starks, Archim Toplin, and Lee Luffridge, I Hate This Place. Issue 1 was out last week. And it's a very interesting twist on the whole haunted house idea. Our central character, uh, a young woman, has inherited a ranch out in the middle of nowhere from an aunt. And uh, our young woman, called Gabby, is warned as she approaches this new home that she's going to with her girlfriend that the place is full of UFOs. And she laughs it off. And then they get where they're going. And weird stuff starts to happen. And Gabby starts to remember visits to that place as a child. And how weird they were. And then they find a videotape from the aunt. Apologising. And saying, I'm really sorry. I just didn't want to die there. And there's a suggestion that maybe now these two young women are here, they can't leave. Utterly terrifying stuff. It's a very creepy, atmospheric sci-fi horror so far. And I was surprised. I didn't expect to like it as much as I do. In fact, I didn't expect to like it at all. And I love it. So that's I Hate This Place. Carl Starks, Archim Toplin and Lee Luffridge. Uh, from Image Comics, out now at all good comic shops. Uh, that one will hit you up for three fifty as well. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of our comics recommendations. And that is very nearly the end of the whole show. Just telling to take a very quick look at the Geek Community Notice Board, which right now is just full of geek pub quizzes. There is the... Geeky Movie Quiz at the Everyman Cinema. That is the Geek Pub Quiz itself, the original and still the best at Major Tom's. And now there is the Kids Geeky Quiz, which is going to be held at Geek Retreat. I don't have the dates in front of me because I'm very bad at being organised, but links to the Geek Pub Quiz social medias are in the show notes. That's info at destinationvenus.co.uk. You can go there and find out everything there is to know about the Geek pub quiz they are back we have missed them but they are back and they are taking over the entire world also giving people spectacularly good nights out uh, and that's it for the geeky notice board because i don't have anything else to tell you so if you have a geeky event that you would like to let people know about just email me info at destinationvenus.co.uk whether it's in harrogate or elsewhere this show goes out on Harrogate Community Radio. It's also a podcast which is heard around the world, ladies and gentlemen. So wherever you are, if you've got something you want to plug, tell me. I'll plug it. Seriously. No charge, no catch, no nothing. It just has to be a geeky event. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk is also where you can send me any comments you have about the show, uh, any suggestions you have for things you might like me to cover on the show. And also, if you know... Any women who are working at, in science for their career who might be interested in coming on the show and talking about it, I would love to hear from them or you. Uh, so, again, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. And if there are any forgotten women of science that you would like me to talk about and research, then, again, hit me up with suggestions. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. But that is pretty much it for now. Show notes are available at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Just click on the blog button and look for episode 52 of Geeking with Destination Venus, which is a copyright feature from Venus Rising Media, engineered here in Harrogate by me. We'll be back next week with more of this geeky, wonderful world. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else, and above all else, stay geeky. <laughs>